Well, last time we were together, I guess last week I wasn't here and Brad preached for me, um, but uh, last time that we were together here, we looked at Matthew 12, 22 to 32, and we saw that section that has in it the unforgivable sin. The Pharisees were attributing Jesus's miracles to the power of Satan. And today, as, as I promised last time, we're going to look at this sin in more detail. And what we're going to see is the source of it. And in doing that, what, what we're actually going to see is, is really the source of all sin. I called this message the root of the unforgivable sin, the root of the unforgivable sin. And let's just look at the text again. Let's start reading in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 22, and we're really going to focus on verses 31 to 37 today, but let's let's go ahead and look at that, starting in verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks." The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And so the Pharisees said that Jesus casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, And Jesus responded in three arguments in verses 25 to to 29. First, he said that Satan would not fight against himself, that Satan's not divided against himself. Second, he pointed out that the Pharisees also did exorcism ministries. And so the question was, was that by Beelzebul? And of course, the answer is, of course not. And then third, Jesus said the secret to his power was the spirit of God. He bound the strong man, Satan, by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and then he plundered Satan's good by casting out his demons. And then in verse 30, Jesus made a statement that there is no neutrality. You are either with him or you are against him. There's no neutral people in the world. And so you can't sit on the fence, as we sometimes say. You either choose to follow Jesus and be a disciple of his, or by default, you're on the other side and you are against him. And so there's no third option there. You're either for him or against him. And then in verses 31 and 32, we have the unforgivable sin, or at least we have the warning about this unforgivable sin. Now, it's it's debatable whether the Pharisees had, had already committed this sin or not. And like I said last time, I promised that we would look at this in a little bit more detail. You know, I think it's something that we want to ensure that we never commit, that it's something that we stay far away from. It's the only sin which will never be forgiven. Every sin will be forgiven except this one sin. And so we're going to look at it in context and in detail, and we're going to do so under four headings. 
We're going to see, first of all, the the utterance against the Spirit in verses 31 and 32. And we'll spend most of our time there looking at this utterance against the Spirit and this unforgivable sin. And then we'll see the statement about trees and fruit in verse 33, the application to speech and to nature in verses 34 and 35, and then the warning about words and judgment in verses 36 and 37. Now, what these verses do is they show us that the unforgivable sin is more than just words. The words came from the abundance of the heart. It shows us the root of the unforgivable sin. It shows us the source of where this sin came from. And these words against Jesus came from an evil nature. And really, all evil comes from the heart. Evil words and evil actions come from evil hearts. And in the case of the unbelieving Pharisees, they're, they're evil hearts and, and they bubbled forth in evil words. They were evil men with evil hearts and Jesus has no problem telling them that that's how they were. And in the case of a genuine believer even, our evil actions and our evil words still come from our hearts. All of our actions and words and emotions flow from the heart. And in a believer, there's still the remnants of our flesh, and we must battle against that as we grow to become like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we need our hearts renewed so that we can speak good words and do holy actions. And so what Jesus says here is is to show the Pharisees their wicked hearts and the source of their unforgivable sin. Now Matthew includes this to make us consider our own words and our own hearts. The two really go together. Our, our words and our hearts go together and they, they reveal, the, the words that come out of our mouths reveal the true nature or the treasure, as Jesus calls it, in our hearts. And so let's see then, first of all, let's look at this utterance against the Spirit in verses 31 and 32. Look at it again there. It says, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, last time when we looked at this, I I really didn't say much about this sin. I just really asked a whole bunch of questions. Uh, And and we're going to ask some questions again here right now. You know, And some of them that come to mind is, what exactly is this sin? And did the Pharisees at this moment commit this sin? And if they had committed that sin, at what point had they committed it? And is it possible to commit this sin, or is it possible to commit a sin like this today? You know, another question I've been wrestling with this week is, why doesn't Matthew tell us more about this sin? Why why doesn't he satisfy our curiosity and concern about this frightful sin? He really only mentions it in passing and continues to move on. And so let's kind of begin with the last question first. Why doesn't Matthew give us more detail here? And I think the answer is, as, as I've been thinking about it this week, is Master, or Matthew is telling a story about the rejection of Christ. And what he wants us to see is what he tells us, and he wants us to see the seriousness of the Pharisees' sin. He wants us to see that the Pharisees had come to a point of no return or at least that they had almost gotten to this point of no return. And so Matthew's telling us just simply what happened. And he's not, at least it seems, he's not directly concerned about how this sin applies to his readers. Otherwise, he would have given us more insight and more information about this sin. And I think that helps us, if we kind of come from that perspective, I think it helps us to answer some of our other questions. And so let's go first of all then, what is this sin? Verse 31 calls it blasphemy against the Spirit. Verse 32 calls it speaking against the Holy Spirit. Now blasphemy, I I think I covered this last time, it's disrespectful or slanderous speech. And here that slanderous speech is directed against Christ and the works that he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' mighty works were done by his own authority, but they were also done by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And the word Messiah in Hebrew is the Greek word Christ or Christos, and, and both of those terms mean the anointed one. Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Christ, he is the anointed one, and what he's anointed with is the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit anointed Jesus to do the works that he did, to do the miracles that he did, and those works were evidence that he is the Messiah. And the Pharisees saw all of these signs and they could not deny them. They couldn't say that that Jesus was a fake miracle worker. They knew that Jesus was doing all of these things and therefore they knew that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Christ. And they knew that he was doing it by the power of the Spirit, but they decided instead to reject him and they attempted to influence the crowd against him by saying that he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And so what this sin was then is a deliberate and conscious blasphemy against the Holy Spirit's work of revealing Christ. And it was hatefully and maliciously attributing the Holy Spirit's work to the devil. So let me, let me just say that again. Here's what this sin is. It's a deliberate and conscious blasphemy against the Holy Spirit's work of revealing Christ. And it was hateful and maliciously attributing the Holy Spirit's work to the devil. And so this sin is not simply a sin of unbelief. And I think that's really important for us to see here. It's not simply unbelief. It's not simply um, in unbelief or even in ignorance that this is done. It's intentionally, intentionally, and it's done hatefully. And so it's not ignorance or it's not unbelief. Now, the next question then is, well, did the Pharisees actually commit this sin or were they only being warned lest they commit this sin? And, and honestly, good men and commentators and, um, theologians are on either side of this issue. There's so some say he didn't commit it. Some say that, that they believe he did commit it. Of course, both sides say obviously they did or obviously they didn't. Um, you know, Herman Bavink said this, and I, I found this helpful, and this will kind of give you the, the sin as well. He says this, he says, whether people think that at that moment the Pharisees actually committed that sin, or whether they believe they have to deny it. And then he pretty much just kind of leaves it there. So whether people think that at this moment the Pharisees actually committed that sin, or whether they believe that they have to deny that the Pharisees committed that sin, the context makes clear that the sin against the Holy Spirit has to has to consist in a conscious, deliberate, intentional blasphemy of the clearly recognized yet hatefully misattributed to the devil revelation of God's grace in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And so the, the nature of this sin, according to Bavink, is that it's a conscious, deliberate, intentional blasphemy of the revelation of God's grace. And, and not only is it blasphemy, but they've they've clearly recognized it And yet, still, they've hatefully said that Jesus is of the devil. So in other words, at least according to Bavink, it it really doesn't matter much whether we think it happened or not. The sin itself is the same either way. Some of them in that moment may have committed this unforgivable sin. Likely others in the crowd spoke in ignorance and unbelief and hadn't actually committed it at that point. But it's important to see that this unforgivable sin is not unbelief, it's not ignorance, or it's not what's called in another place resisting the Holy Spirit. And so this sin is different than a sin of resisting the Holy Spirit. And to kind of see this, I want you to go to the book of Acts. Let's go to Acts, really chapter 7, but we're going to start in chapter 6. Look at Acts chapter 6 and starting in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now some of those priests might have been Pharisees, which I think is helpful to realize as well. In verse 8, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, or the freedmen, as it was called, 
and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and of those from Sicily and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, and then we'll just kind of, we'll stop there. But according to chapter six, verse five, Stephen was a man who was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And really all of chapter seven is his defense. Stephen gives this defense. I'm not going to read it now, but if you just turn to the end of Stephen's defense in chapter seven, verse 51, Stephen closes by saying, you stiff necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And so here we have Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, and he's giving really irrefutable evidence that Jesus was the Christ. And the people who heard him were, in Stephen's own words, they were resisting the Holy Spirit. And one of those people is Saul, who later becomes known to us as the Apostle Paul, who is forgiven of this sin of persecution, forgiven of this sin of overseeing the murder of Stephen, and he was later became the greatest uh, evangelist and apostle uh, in church history. And Paul was forgiven, and therefore he had not committed the blasphemy of the Spirit. Now Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, and let's go over and look at that. Maybe keep your fingers in Acts, because we're going to go back right away to Acts chapter 3. But um, go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verses 12 to 14, Paul says there, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus." So Paul here notice, points out that he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. We saw in Acts that he was resisting the Holy Spirit, but he did so in ignorance and in unbelief, and the Lord had mercy on him and forgave him his sins and even appointed him to his service. Now go back to Acts, and let's look at chapter 3 and verse 14. This is... Um, Peter preaching here. And Peter's talking to the crowds and he says, but in verse chapter 3, verse 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses and his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong who you see and know and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man his perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. And then Peter goes on and calls them to repentance and faith in Christ. But the, these murderers of Christ, who, again, were resisting the Holy Spirit, acted in ignorance, and so Peter ha gives them an opportunity for repentance. 
And, and really what I just am trying to show you here is that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is more than mere unbelief. It's more than resisting the spirit, uh, resisting the spirit. It's beyond just mere ignorance. And those can all be forgiven. You know, unbelief, resisting the spirit and ignorance can all be forgiven. But this sin, Jesus says, will not be forgiven. And so we might wonder then, well, why is it that this particular sin can't be forgiven? And the reason that some say that it can't be forgiven is because the person who commits it continues to, and so they'll never come to Christ. And so, in other words, what, what people sometimes will say is that the reason that this sin can't be forgiven is because it's a sin that that continues through the whole person's life, that it's a sin that the person never turns away from and repents of. And, and I think that's true, but, but what, what we miss when we say that is that this is a, a sin that, that Jesus seems to say is committed once for all. I, I, so I think that that view is kind of close, and I think it's true that a person who commits this unforgivable sin is never going to repent. They're, they're going to remain in a hardened state but it's, it's not just because the nature of that sin is an ongoing sin. I hope I'm making that clear. But, but this is a sin, again, that once committed is never forgiven. It's a sin that, that will never be forgiven. Once committed, that's it. And that person is never going to be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come, which is kind of a, a fancy way to say never. You see, there's a difference between this unforgivable sin and continuous unbelief or continuous resisting the Spirit. See, you can continually unbelieve and continually resist the Spirit, but that can be forgiven so long as that person repents and believes before they die. And so resisting the Spirit can be forgiven, whereas this sin will not be forgiven. And again, the blasphemy of the Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. And again, Herman Bavink was helpful here as well. And he said, as he talked about this, he said, God has made laws concerning sin. And then he said, quote, and in connection with this sin, that law consists in the fact that it rules out all remorse, scorches the conscience, conscience shut, definitively hardens the sinner, and in this way makes his sin unpardonable, end quote. And so God has established a law, and God has decided that once this particular sin has been committed, he will not work any fear any further to save the one who has committed this sin. And it's going to leave them then, God's going to leave them in a hardened state of unbelief and hostility. And so that kind of, I hope, explains the nature of this sin, at least as best as I can. Now let's ask, can this sin be committed today? Can this sin be committed today? And we need to recognize, I think, first of all, the very unique context of this sin. I think it's very important for us to recognize that. And I, I think I did speak about that last week. You see, God the Son was on the earth doing miracles to reveal who he was, and he was doing those miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Pharisees could not deny it, and so they willfully and hatefully said that Christ was, in effect, they said Christ was Satan. They turned evil good and good evil. And, and, and that is really so different from what's happening today, even like in the moment when I'm preaching the gospel or something like that, or when you're preaching the gospel. You see, we preach the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit, but we're not doing miracles, and we are far from Jesus Christ. We are not the Lord Jesus Christ. And even in Acts chapter 6 and 7, Stephen was performing miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit, and nobody could refute his wisdom. But besides that, we would never be able to know at what point someone has committed this sin. Even if it was committable today, we would never know at what point somebody had committed this sin. You see, Jesus, he knows people's hearts, and he's the one who has authority on earth to forgive sins, and so he can say that this was blasphemy, and that once it was committed, um, there's no forgiveness anymore, but, but we're not able to say that about anyone. And so the only evidence that we would have is for someone to continue in a state of hardness and unbelief. That's really the only way that we could even guess that such a sin was committed. 
But we can't know if they continued in that simply because of the unpardonable sin or, or whether they continued in that simply in a state of unbelief and ignorance. And so we never are able to tell in this life if somebody has committed this sin or not. Now, just I want to briefly address a person who maybe worries that you've committed this sin. Maybe you've perhaps wondered, have I committed this sin? Well, the first thing I'd say to you is just look at, look at this sin. Look at what it is. And again, it's a deliberate, conscious rejecting of Jesus Christ and blaspheming the Spirit working through Him. And it's a sin then against the full knowledge of who Christ is with a God-hating refusal to recognize Him for who He is. Now, if you're doing that, then I would say then you, then you need to repent. And there's maybe hope for you if you do repent. If you turn from this sin, you show that you've never committed it. You show that all you've been doing up to this point is resisting the Spirit. You haven't blasphemed the Spirit. And so if you are doing that, if you're, if you're deliberately and consciously rejecting Christ and, and saying that He's from the devil, then you need to repent of that sin. And if you do repent, then it shows that you haven't committed that sin. You see, this is a sin, really, that, that's a non-Christian sin. If you're a disciple of Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then by definition, you're not committing this sin, and you haven't committed this sin. And if you're willing to turn from your sins and come to Christ, then you must not have blasphemed, blasphemed the Holy Spirit, because if you had, you would be unwilling to come, and you would be continuing in your hateful state. Because again, this sin leaves one in a state of hardened hostility against God and against Christ. And so look back at the text. It's, Jesus says there, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven except for this one. And so what I want you to see from that is that there's not multiple different kinds of blasphemy of the Spirit. There's, there's not other unforgivable sins. All sin and all blasphemy will be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Spirit. Every sin will be forgiven so long as people come to Jesus who alone can forgive sins. And this means that people are adding to Scripture. If, if they say something like being baptized as a believer according to Scripture is the blasphemy of the Spirit. You, you've probably heard that before. And, and, and so, if somebody says that, they're really adding to Scripture because being baptized as a believer according to the Scripture is not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Being rebaptized is not even a sin if there even is such a thing as being rebaptized. You see, if you were baptized as an unbeliever or if you were baptized in water thinking that that was receiving the Holy Spirit or that in that water your sins were washed away, or if you were baptized in any other unbiblical way, then you were not baptized biblically, and you should do so. You should be baptized biblically. And what we call that is being baptized. We don't call that being rebaptized. That's just simply being baptized biblically. There's really no such thing as rebaptism. <clears throat> and if you did that, that's not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's just simply, it's called obedience to Jesus Christ. It's not blasphemy of the Spirit, it's obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at the context, though, there's nothing here in this context about baptism. This isn't speaking about baptism at all. And in fact, if you think about it, it's interesting. It's the Pharisees who refused John's baptism, and it's the Pharisees who later refused Jesus' baptism, or what we might call Christian baptism. And so refusing baptism, that's more in line with the Pharisees and with the unforgivable sin than being biblically baptized. <clears throat> but what I'm arguing, I guess, is that we can't add to the unforgivable sin what's not here. And so this is the unforgivable sin done in this context. Now, there's one more thing that, that I just I really want to kind of drive home or, or dig into a little bit here. And that's, a, again, the same question. Can this sin be committed today? And so obviously Jesus isn't here. Obviously he's not doing miracles by the power of the Spirit and nobody is attributing what Jesus is doing to Satan. 
But let's think about this. Can, can this sin be committed today? Or, or is there a, a sin that might be parallel to this, a similar sin that's mentioned in Scripture? And, and there really is maybe three places where something similar to this is mentioned. And, and the first one is in the book of Hebrews chapter 6. And so I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Now, as we look at this, I think we can note, first of all, that in the context here, this sin is not called the blasphemy of the Spirit, but it really does seem to be a similar sin. And we see it in Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. And so let's read that. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. For it is impossible... The author of Hebrews here writes, it is impossible in the case of those who have been once, who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, before I really say what I want to say here, I just wanted to kind of give a little shout out here that Lauren and I covered this passage in our podcast, and I think we covered it in more detail than I'm going to do today. I think it was in our podcast on assurance, but I didn't double check with Lauren before I did that, but I'm pretty sure we covered this in our podcast on assurance. And I just want you guys to know that we have a podcast and it's, it's really for you guys to listen to so that so that we can kind of have more opportunities to to get the word of God out for you. So I just wanted to kind of shout out about that. Um, it's called Abide in the Word, and if you want, we can kind of hook you up with that. But but notice here what the author of Hebrews is saying. He says it's impossible. In the case of these people who he describes in verses 4, 5, and 6, it's impossible to restore this person or to renew this person to repentance. And the reason is in verse 6, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. And so the person described in this case is not a Christian, and I'll show you why we think that, but, but they've come very close to being a Christian. And there's five things that are said about them in this passage. There's five participles here. The first one is that they were they had once been enlightened. Then they tasted the heavenly gift and, and, you know, kind of whatever that is, but they've tasted the heavenly gift. They've had a taste of it. They were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and, and likely the way that they've been partakers of the Holy Spirit is by being in close association with the church. And they've tasted the good word of God and with it they've also tasted the powers of the age to come. And again, that's likely this tasting is happening by being closely associated with the church, but yet not being saved. And then fifthly, or um, yeah, that was four, tasted the, the good word of God. And then fifthly, they have also fallen away. And so they've kind of tasted all of these things, and now they also decide to leave all of that. And now the question is in this context, well, where do they go? Where are they, where are they falling away to? And in Hebrews, what's happening here is they're going to leave Christ and they're going to leave all that they learned about Jesus Christ and they're going to go back to Moses and they're going to go back to make animal sacrifices for the forgiveness of their sins. And by doing that, by going back and and kind of rejecting Christ and going back to Moses, they're shaming Christ and crucifying him again in their sacrifices as they, they kind of deny the only possible way that their sins can be forgiven and they go back to the shadow instead of sticking with the substance who is Christ. And such a one, according to the author of Hebrews, who has come so close and then turns back, it's going to be impossible to bring them to repentance. In other words, there's there's no kind of coming back from a sin like this. And such a one, according to verse 8, is like land that bears thorns and really all that you can do in the end with with a a land like that or a person like that is burn it. In other words, they're going to go 
to hell. So look at verse 9. So the, the author says, but though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Then he says, things that belong to salvation. And so the author of Hebrews is warning these people, but he's hopeful of better things, things that go along with salvation, with truly being saved. And so what he describes in verses four to six are not things that belong to salvation, but he's hopeful in the case of his hearers that they're going to heed this warning. They're not going to deny Christ and they're going to have these things that do go along with salvation. And what goes along with salvation? Well, fruit and blessing and usefulness according to verse seven. Also, really, according to the whole book, what goes along with salvation is holding fast to Jesus Christ to the end. Now, again, in these verses, we see something very close to what we see in Matthew chapter 12. We see unsaved people who've been enlightened to the truth. They've, they've, the, the Spirit has worked in such a way that they understand the truth, and they're now rejecting that truth in a blaspheming way In our text, it's by saying that Jesus is the devil. In Hebrews 6, it's by going back to animal animal sacrifices and denying the only true sacrifice that can take away our sins. And then Hebrews chapter 10 has a similar warning. Turn over there. Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. And throughout the book of Hebrews, there's these warnings for anyone in that group that, that might not be truly saved. There's these warnings for them to hold fast to Christ. And he says in Hebrews 10, starting in verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately, and the way that we go on sinning deliberately is by not holding fast the confession of our faith, which we see in verse 23. If we don't enter into God's presence through Christ, like we see in verse 19, if we forsake the gathering and and go back instead to animal sacrifices in verses 25 and 26. And so if we go on sinning in those ways, which would be a deliberate sin against this knowledge that they have. So let's look at it again. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment So there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. Why? Because they've denied the true sacrifice for sins. And all that remains then is this fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so again, the deliberate sin in this context is a denial of Christ, the only savior from sin. And if we deny him, all that remains for us is this fearful expectation of judgment. Now, there's one other place in the New Testament that, that might have a sin parallel to this, and that's in 1 John 5.16, where John says not to pray regarding a sin that leads to death. And many people kind of see that as a similar sin. And, and just to be honest, I'm not really sure, and I'm thankful this morning that I'm not preaching 1 John. And so we're just going to leave it right there. And so that's the, the utterance against the Spirit. Let's go then, then number two. Let's look at the statement about trees and fruit in verse 33. The statement about trees and fruit in verse 33. And Jesus says, either make the tree good or its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. And the first thing to notice is that this is a continuation of Jesus' words to the Pharisees. It's not completely new and and an unrelated topic. He's he's continuing to speak to the Pharisees. And he begins here with what kind of seems like a proverb. He's not not commanding something, even though he uses a a command tense. He says, make, but it's again, it's not a command. It's more like a general truth. And we kind of do this sometimes as well. You, You kind of heard this saying, give a dog a bad name. And I don't know how it ends, but give a dog a bad name and it's kind of like, well, he's going to be a bad dog, right? Because he's got a bad name. 
And, and we don't mean when we say that, give a dog a bad name, we don't mean that you should give a dog a bad name. We're, it's just kind of a statement of truth. Or, or sometimes we say, give him an inch and he'll take a mile. And by that, we don't mean give the guy an inch. We mean don't give the guy an inch because he's going to kind of go beyond what you've given him. And so it's not a command. It's just kind of a general proverbial statement that Jesus makes here. He doesn't want us to, to do anything or to make anything with trees or with even with people for that matter. He's just making a statement of fact. And, and the facts are that good trees have good fruit and bad trees have bad fruit. And the word translated good here means useful and beautiful. And the word translated bad here means of little value or bad or not good. And sometimes it was used of fruit or of fish to speak of rotten fruit or rotten fish. And so the idea here is that a a bad tree or an unwholesome tree, an unhealthy tree produces bad fruit. And if you want to know the state of of a tree, then you look at its fruit again at the end of verse 33 for the tree is known by its fruit. And then from this statement about trees and fruit, Jesus moves to the application to the situation that's happening with the Pharisees. And so he makes this statement about trees and fruit, but he's really talking about people. And he kind of moves to people in verses 34 and 35. And I called this the application to speech and nature. So he's going to apply what he said about trees and fruit to speech and nature. And so he says in verse 34, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And so Jesus calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers, literally just the offspring of vipers. And so they called him Beelzebul, and now he returns with an insult of his own, you brood of vipers. And then he asked this question, how? How is it possible to speak good when you are evil? And here we have different words for good and evil. The, these are the, the more usual words for good and evil that just mean good and evil. And Jesus notes here the impossibility. How are they able, how is it possible for them to speak good when they are evil? And the idea here is that our nature determines our speech. Just like the tree determines the fruit, the kind of tree, the health of the tree determines the health of the fruit in the same way the the nature of the man determines the speech that comes out of his mouth. And the Pharisees are evil and therefore they're unable to speak good. And in this case, the, the good that Jesus is referring to is they're unable to speak good in regards to Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit. And so the mouth speaks what's in the heart. And what the heart is full of, its abundance flows out of the mouth. Now this is spoken to the Pharisees, but it really applies to all people at all times. What's in our heart comes out of our mouth, and it comes out in words. And so who we are, whether good or evil, is going to show itself in our fruit. And we can even extend that broader. It's going to show itself in our words, in our emotions, in our actions, and how we respond to situations. Everything that, that is in the heart eventually comes out and reveals itself as we kind of, because, because our heart is our, really our control center. And so what's in our heart is going to bubble out. It's going to show itself in our words, emotions, and actions. And Jesus says in verse 35, the good person out of the, out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And the idea here then is that the Pharisees haven't just simply misspoken. They have revealed their hearts. And so the truth about our nature, again, applies to all of us. You see, we all come into the world as evil people. Jesus said the same thing to his disciples in, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says in Matthew seven eleven, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And so Jesus recognizes that all men are evil by nature. And we saw in Matthew eleven twenty five to 27 that the things of salvation are hidden from the wise and understanding and they're revealed according to the Father's gracious will. 
And so what we need in order to come to Christ and speak rightly about him and and act rightly in accordance with him is we need a new and a good nature. We need to be made a new creation. We need to be made something different than what we are when we come into this world. We need to be made good. We need to be turned into a good tree. And if you're not saved, then you should earnestly ask God to give you a new heart that loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're here today and you're not a believer, then ask God to give you this new heart that you need in order to recognize who Christ is and become a disciple of his. Ask him to save you from your evil heart. You see, it's only through regeneration, the miracle of regeneration, that we can have what Jesus calls a good treasure in our hearts, that we can be good people. We need to be renewed by the truth so that our words will be holy and pure and true like the words of our Lord were. And so even for us as saved people, we need to be renewed in the spirit of our mind, transformed by the truth of God's word so that good things will come out of our mouths and that good actions will come out of our hearts. And so that's the application to speech and nature. Just like a good tree makes good fruit and bad trees make bad fruit, so people make good fruit or bad fruit depending on the kind of people they are in their heart. They're either good or evil. We're either good or evil. And this is something that Jesus really constantly drives home and presses home is this need to be born again. And what's happened here is the Pharisees have shown by their words that they weren't born again. And so now Jesus is going to warn them about their words and he's going to warn them about the judgment to come. And this applies to us as well. He says in verse 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. And I called this number four, the warning about words and judgment. You see, on the day of judgment, people, and it's just really men there, the ESV likes to translate that sometimes people, but on the day of judgment, really all men, all people are going to give an account. Everyone, believers and unbelievers alike, all of us are going to one day stand before the holy God of the universe. Romans 14 verse 10 says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, for we all, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And Hebrews 9.27 says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. You see, all of us are going to give an account of our lives on this day of judgment. And on that day, According to Jesus, who's going to be the judge on that day, the one who we're going to stand before on that day, people, all men, are going to give an account for every careless word they speak. And really, that's amazing to think about. Every word, every word that we speak, an omniscient God knows everyone, and we're going to give an account for it. Every careless word, Jesus says. And careless there means idle, means lazy, means empty, every every worthless word. And the idea probably isn't so much careless, but useless or worthless words. See, it's not, when we think about the context, it's not that the Pharisees were careless in their speech. It's not like they accidentally spoke something that that they didn't really mean. It's more that they were speaking worthless words. See, they knew exactly what they were doing. It's not that they were careless. They, They were deliberate, and they spoke these useless words about Jesus Christ, and for that they would be judged. They spoke idle words, and they would be judged. And we too, if we think about it, brothers and sisters, and everyone here today, we have spoken idle words. We have spoken worthless words. Maybe not the unforgivable sin, but we're going to give an account for every word that we've ever spoken. Every lie that we've ever told, every blasphemy that we've ever uttered, every curse that we've said, every word that hurt another person, every word that has come out of our mouths, we're going to give an account for that. Not to mention every action, every deed, every emotion, every thought that we've had. Ecclesiastes 12.14 says, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. 
And on this basis that every one of us are going to be condemned because all of us have sinned. All of us have spoken words that are worthy of God's judgment. And our only hope is to be justified through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, by grace, through faith in Christ, we can be justified, which means that we can be accounted as righteous. We can receive Jesus' righteousness by our union with him. He takes our sin, resulting in forgiveness, and we take his righteousness, resulting in justification. And so through that union with Christ, we can be counted righteous before a holy God. But if you look back at the text here, if you're in Matthew 12 still, and you look at verse 37, Jesus says, For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus doesn't say here that we're going to be justified by faith. He says we're going to be justified by our words. Now, he doesn't mean here that we can be saved by our words. None of us can speak perfectly without sinning. We are all born sinners, and all of us have spoken in ways that are sinful and worthy of judgment. But what Jesus is referring to here again is is what he often does when speaking of salvation in Matthew And that is of the transformation of the life of a true disciple. You see, true believers, as we've already seen, have new hearts. And we are made good people by grace through faith when we trust in Christ. And we're no longer evil. We are a new creation. And out of that new nature, we're going to speak new kinds of words, holy words. And we're going to have this treasure in our hearts. And that treasure is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to love him and speak well of him. And our words are going to show and our actions are going to show the transformation that happens when we're saved by Christ through faith. And so our words are going to declare us to be righteous and that they're going to show us to be genuinely saved people. Just as the Pharisees and all really other people, unbelievers, are going to be condemned by their words, so in that same sense, we're going to be justified by our words. Our words are going to show who we are, whether sinners or saved. And so we've seen then this morning the utterance against the Spirit. We saw the statement about trees and fruit, the application to speech and nature. And then fourthly, we've, we've seen this warning about words and judgment And I just want to close, I guess, by asking this and having you think about this. What do your words say about you? What do your words say about you? Are you a good tree or a bad tree? Are you a good person or an evil person? Are you a person that's been transformed by saving grace? Or are you a person that's still in your sins and needs to be saved? Jesus says again, I tell you on that day, On the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your salvation that you've given us in Christ. We thank you that every sin can be forgiven. All of our sinful words and actions and deeds can be forgiven except this unforgivable sin. Father, we pray that that you would help us in our words, that, that for those of us who are saved, that we would be renewed in the spirit of our minds and that we would speak holy and good words. We pray for who are, any who are here today that aren't saved, that you would save them by your grace, that you would transform them by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray for any that are struggling with the assurance of their salvation, that you would help them to know where they truly stand. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.